Well, good morning, church. Good morning to the one, one person sitting on the front pew. Um, I told uh, Elizabeth that my sermon was two pages longer than normal, and her only thought was that, well, then people wouldn't get caught when they sleep at home. So the recliners are our enemy these days. Uh, don't sit in a recliner while you're listening to sermons. Um, but it is good to be here this morning and uh, to be bringing the Word of God uh, to the church. Uh, hopefully we have uh, people at home that are doing well, and we look forward to being able to get together again soon. I know we say that every week as, as long as this thing keeps dragging out, um, but God absolutely knows what He's doing, and uh, there are many things that we can be strengthened by during this time. Um, but for now, this is, this is how we're doing things, and uh, I'm glad that you're at home being able to uh, participate through technology and all the people, the talented people that we have here in our church family that can put, put these things together. Um, so as we get started this morning, and you, and you have your Bibles, um, grab those and um, turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and we'll get started. Job had a friend named Bildad, and one day as they were talking about the sinfulness of man, and Job was lamenting what he felt like uh, was his hopeless situation, Job asked a question, and he asked, but how can a man be in the right before God? Many chapters later, his friend Bildad would ask the same question, saying, how then can a man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? This is a question that goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned and, and all of humanity was cursed. The question itself suggests man is not right with God. It is the natural question. It is the question of one whose sin has been exposed to him, such as we see at Pentecost. As the Holy Spirit came upon the believers and and men scoffed at this. Peter stood up, and in a loud voice, he proclaimed the word of God to thousands in the crowd. He proved to them through the scriptures that not only was Jesus Christ the long-awaited Messiah, but that he had, they had crucified him. And now he was risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, and would one day make his enemies a footstool. In Acts 2, 36 and 37, listen to what Peter says and how the people respond to their sin being exposed. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Paul and Silas sat in a Roman prison singing hymns to God and praying while others listened. God caused an earthquake to shake the foundations of the prison. God opened the prison doors and unfastened the prisoners' bonds. The jailer was going to kill himself because he thought they escaped, but Paul stopped him. In the face of this and the fierce demonstration of God's power, Luke tells, tells us in the book of Acts in chapter 16, verses 29 and 30, how the jailer responded. 
He said, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the same question as always. When man is shown his sin before a holy God, man wants to know how he can be made right. This is the question. Let me answer the question right now in its simplest form. How can man be right before God by being perfectly righteous? Matthew 5.48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's only one problem with that. The Bible says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In Psalm 14, 2 and 3. And Romans 3, 10 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So let's get this straight. Man is sinful and not right with God. God says to be made right with him, man has to be perfectly righteous like he is. But God also says, Not even one person is righteous or even good. This is an impossible situation, isn't it? It is absolutely impossible for man to fix this problem, and that is the point of all of Scripture. That is the point of the gospel. And Today we will see how God fixes this problem as we continue in our ongoing sermon series in the book of Philippians. Would you pray with me? as we get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that though this impossible problem is right before us, that you have taken care of the problem. You have fixed it. You are the answer, Lord. I pray today as we read your word, as we hear of the way that that you take care of this problem, that we would be So grateful, Father, that, that our, our joy and our salvation would be refreshed. That we would have new and greater understanding of the cost for our salvation. And Father, may you take those things that we are thinking wrongly about our salvation, may you take them today and expose them, Lord, and may we be willing to cast them aside for the truth give you praise. And thanks for your mercy. What a wonderful God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles and you're at Philippians chapter 3, we are at the beginning of chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to go through verse 9 today. Let's read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And you can follow along with me as we hear God speak to us through His sufficient Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers 
Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by spirit, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here we see Paul continuing to show his great affection for the church and his spiritual connection with them when he calls them brothers. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Not finally because he's about done and he's wrapping things up. Uh, We can see that that that's not so because he's only halfway through this, this letter. Well, we're only halfway through this letter, but at this time where he's writing, he's only halfway through. And in fact, he'll say finally again in chapter 4 and still have more to say. The word Paul uses here is really more of a transition word, having the meaning that, that he's continuing on with important things to say and not ending his letter. It's more like saying furthermore or, or now then. So he's transitioning from what he's been writing about, which uh, the last time that I spoke in, in Philippians, he was dealing with Epaphroditus and his illness and the fact that he's sending Epaphroditus back to them. Um, and so now he, he transitions to talking about a problem in the church. And it's a problem that threatens the joy they have in their walk with Christ. Joy in Christ is a major theme in this letter, and Paul has already mentioned joy nine times in the first two chapters. But I want to leave that there for now and come back to this subject at the end of the sermon, and I think you'll see why when we get there. For now, let's continue on in the text where we'll see that the main subject of this passage is really about righteousness before God and, and how sinful men and women can possess it. Paul is about to repeat something else he has said to the church before, be it in person or, or in written form. So he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is a safeguard for you. It certainly doesn't bother Paul to remind the people of very important things, especially uh, regarding the truth of the gospel. In fact, it doesn't trouble him because he views this kind of repetition as a safeguard for the church. But why does the church need a safeguard? The reason is that the, the truth of the gospel is always under attack. The church needs to be warned so they can be steadfast in the truth in order to withstand this attack. Sadly, the attack will mostly come from within 
or those claiming to be within the church. Paul spoke of this when he warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. What will these fierce wolves do? They will twist the truth to draw away the disciples after them. That is what Paul is warning the Philippian church about in this text. There's a group of people who are twisting the truth of God and causing trouble among the believers. We commonly know this group as the Judaizers. They were a group of Jews that wanted to impose the standards and the laws of Judaism on Christianity. One of the main points of these people was that you could not be a Christian unless you were physically circumcised. This heresy plagued the early church. And prior to this letter, Paul has already had to confront uh, confronted in other places. We see Paul and Barnabas having a strong dissension and debate with the Judaizers in Acts 15. And again, we see Paul grieved over the effects of this heresy on the Galatian church. Paul says to the Galatians, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? If you want to turn with me over to Galatians chapter 5 and look at what he says uh, to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is why Paul gives this warning in verse 2 of our Philippians passage. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Judaizers are pursuing, they really are pursuing that which is needed to be made right with God. But in doing so, they reject the only means of obtaining it. Getting the gospel wrong is deadly. You can see why Paul would warn people with tears. No wonder he uses such strong language. And Paul doesn't use name-calling as a way of being mean, but as a way to describe the severity of falling into this heresy. He is giving the church a picture of what the people peddling this heresy are like when it comes to the damage they do to men's souls. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. These are not just people with another opinion or another way to be righteous, but they have a completely different gospel that seeks to draw people away 
from the truth. Now, they all knew what Paul meant by calling these people dogs. Wild dogs roamed ancient cities. They were in packs, and they were not pets. They were a nuisance, scavengers feeding on garbage, and they were something to be avoided and sometimes feared. It became something derogatory when you called someone a dog, and everyone knew what you meant. These are the dogs God spoke about when he told Moses that the people could not eat meat that had been torn by beasts in the field. Instead, they were to throw it to the dogs. These are the dogs that God referenced through the prophets regarding his judgments against people such as Jezebel and anyone that belonged to them. God said they would die and be eaten by the dogs. Male prostitutes were referred to as dogs, and it was common for Jews to refer to Gentiles as dogs. In David's Psalm 22, prophecy about Jesus' crucifixion and all the people that were there, he describes the scene as Jesus being encompassed by dogs. They are evildoers, not because they're out robbing the clerk at the liquor store, but because they were puffed up with pride in their own supposed righteousness, thinking they could obey the law perfectly and please God and earn their salvation. In reality, no matter how many good works they claimed to do, the works were only evil. Now, in regard to the Judaizers' favorite gospel-twisting requirement, circumcision, God did command it for every Jewish male on the eighth day after his birth. This was the mark of the covenant God had with his people, and it was no small thing. If a Jewish male was uncircumcised, he was to be cut off from the people of God. Jews as a whole identified themselves and became known to one another as the circumcision. Gentiles, on the other hand, were known as the uncircumcision. If someone said another person was a member of the circumcision, they were identifying them as Jews and therefore as God's covenant people. This became a source of pride for the Jews, and especially those who were among the leaders, such as Pharisees. This became something to brag about because they were the ones who pleased God by obedience and circumcision. But circumcision never made any Jew right before God, any more than animal sacrifice did. These were both things commanded by God under the Old Covenant as pictures or types of something else. In the case of animal sacrifice, it pointed to the need for bloodshed by a perfect sacrificial lamb who would come and actually take away the sin of the people, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the case of circumcision, this physical act of cutting away the foreskin of the male child showed the depravity of man by cutting away at the source of passing sin on in the act of procreation. This act symbolized the reality that man needed to be cleansed from sin at the deepest root of his being. That is why in Psalm 51.5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This isn't just a commentary on David's parents, but on the nature of all mankind. That sinful people create more sinful people, and it's even so at conception. And that is not to say it's a sin to have children, just to say that man's problem is continually passed down uh, from Adam and, and cannot be done away with by the birth of new perfect children. As every parent understands, there are no perfect children. 
Uh, they, they instinctively do what is best for them, what they want. I remember my oldest daughter, when we would try to put her in the car seat, she would stiffen up, and we'd have to try to shove her down in the seat. And, and when they're babies, they whine, and they cry, and they want everything, and they demand it. Uh, it's, it's natural. It comes natural. You don't have to teach them these things. I remember when uh, Pastor Stan wanted to give Elizabeth a hug one day, and she kicked him in the shins. You know, this is, I never taught her to kick the pastor in the shins. That's something that kids just do. Right? There are no perfect children. And circumcision was also never really about the physical act. In that it was meant to be a physical act of obedience, picturing an inward reality. It was really about the heart of God's people needing to be circumcised. The scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, make this clear. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, it says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Romans 2, 29 says, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The problem with the Judaizers is they professed a faith in Christ, but added to the gospel the requirement of physical circumcision in order to be saved. God's command for physical circumcision had been done away with under the new covenant in Christ's blood, just like animal sacrifice. But the Judaizers were not concerned with the fact that their hearts were uncircumcised. Their ritual of physical circumcision really was nothing more than useless mutilation of the flesh, making them evildoers instead. While the Judaizer would brag of being the circumcision, Paul refutes that in verse 3 by saying plainly, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The one who can claim to be the true circumcision is the one whose heart has been circumcised by God. God has, in fact, given them a new heart through repentance and faith in Christ. God has caused them to be born again, and they have a new nature. This is evident by the filling of the Holy Spirit in the believer as they worship God in spirit and in truth, not bringing glory to themselves by all they have accomplished, but by humbling themselves and glorying in Christ Jesus and all that He has accomplished. So what Paul is saying is that the one who is truly saved is the one who puts no confidence in the flesh, either fully or partially, thereby adding to the gospel of Christ. He says, the true circumcision put no confidence in the flesh, and he identifies the church as such. That means that you reject any ability you think you have, any work you think you have done, any temptation to pride in good deeds, and recognize that those things are all useless for being righteous before God. So he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoer, the mutilator of the flesh. Be aware. Why? Because they will trouble you with their attempts to disqualify you in regard to your salvation. They would burden you with what you cannot bear. Look out, because this is no joke. 
look out because some are falling prey to this false gospel. And you and I would be foolish to think that this is not still relevant today. We don't talk about circumcision, but, but we're surrounded by religious systems that claim Christ in some fashion and then add works to gain salvation, thereby preaching another gospel. You and I have to be aware of this. So the warning is to us as well. This, this heresy is alive and well. Watch out for it. We cannot embrace them as brothers. We cannot work with them in the cause of Christ because they are not of Christ, but of their father, the devil. Look at what Paul says to the Galatians regarding this same heresy in Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-8. through 8. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If you cannot yet see why confidence in the flesh is such a problem, Paul goes on to clarify further. He puts his old self in the spotlight for a minute to show why this is a problem, how useless works of the flesh are and what should be done about it. He's asking the reader to imagine for a minute that righteousness was gained by confidence in the flesh. In other words, imagine that working and having a list of things to show for yourself is what God looked at and then determined if you were perfectly righteous and could now enter his kingdom for eternity. Paul says if if it was by the flesh, he has more reason to be confident than the Judaizers do. Look at verse 4 in Philippians 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now Paul goes on to lay out his case with a list of all the best qualifications of the flesh. Let's look at what he says. And looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, This is what Paul says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And keep in mind, this this is a practice in pleasing man, not God. But Paul knows this, but he's, he's making his case. What he's laid out here are all the things that man would look at and believe this man, Paul, is a very righteous man and God surely would accept him. There are seven things Paul lists and the first three are not things he accomplished on his own but but things that he had by virtue of his birth and what his parents did. First, he was circumcised on the eighth day. In accordance with God's law, his parents had this done so he cannot be accused by the Judaizers of not being circumcised. Second, he was of the people of Israel. Again, he was born into this. Uh, Lost my spot. He was born into it, but um, nevertheless, better than some of the Judaizers who uh, were Gentile converts uh, to Judaism. But, But he himself was born into God's covenant people. Third, He was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
one of the most important of the twelve tribes. Benjamin was the only one of Jacob's sons to be born in the promised land. Israel's first king, Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem uh, is in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, and so on. There are many examples in Scripture of of Benjamin being a, a very prominent tribe. And though we look at these things and don't get the significance, the people Paul was writing to got it. Whatever claims the false teachers had to confidence in the flesh, Paul has probably already outdone them, but he goes on. Fourth, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He stuck tightly to his Jewish heritage. He followed the rules and customs and grew up being fully committed. He knew that even the other Jews knew this about him. When defending himself before Agrippa in Acts 26.4, Paul said, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. People knew Paul, Saul at the time. Fifth, he was, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul called the Pharisees, in another part of Scripture, the strictest party of the Jewish religion. These were seen as the highest and most outwardly righteous Jews, supposedly keeping the law of God to the letter. They were also the targets of much of Jesus' criticism. And many of the Judaizers were Pharisees. Sixth, he said he was, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Prior to his conversion, Paul's zeal for God as a Pharisee caused him to hate the Christians. And he saw them as lawbreakers and heretics deserving of imprisonment and death. He held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. The Scripture says he went about ravaging the church and dragging men and women off to prison. And he was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of Christ while he was on his way to Damascus with letters to imprison more Christians when Christ met him and changed his life. Seventh, he was, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Again, righteousness is what is needed to be right with God, and Paul says he was blameless in this area. But don't miss what he actually said. He said he was blameless as to righteousness under the law. This is not actual righteousness before God, but before man. As far as man could tell, Paul was blameless, and no charge could be brought against him. But in the eyes of God, he was not righteous at all. So there you have it. If anyone could be saved by self-righteous deeds, if anyone had the stuff, it was Paul. That would probably have impressed even the best of the Judaizers. And that is what all the other Jews would have been striving for, so they could have something of value to offer God to be made righteous. And that is what Paul thought of it. Those things were of supreme value to him. Complete confidence in the flesh. Is it right to be obedient to God? Yes. Is it right to follow His Word? Yes. But to do so thinking that is what makes you righteous unto salvation is pride and sin. It was all gain in Paul's eyes, but by the grace of God, he came to a different understanding. He came to knowledge of the truth by the Word of Christ. In verse 7, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
these supposedly valuable things for righteousness, Paul now thought of differently. These are accounting terms he's using. And, and those things he once held in the gain column of his ledger, he now counted in the loss column. Why? For the sake of Christ. That's not to say Christ somehow needed Paul because Paul had a change of mind and now Christ has been helped. What Paul means is for the sake of having Christ, for the sake of being in Christ. You see, he's reminding the church of what they already know, but warning that this is what is under attack. He wants to shore them up in the truth. So he goes on to punctuate this statement with another one. He doubles down in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In his first statement, he said he counted his gain as loss. Looking back to that time when Christ confronted him on the road and Paul's conversion, that is what he did when he first encountered the risen Lord. Now, in the present tense, he is still counting everything as loss. This is ongoing. Why? Because to know Jesus Christ as Lord is of surpassing worth. This is hard to put into words, but there is nothing better. The value of knowing Christ as Lord is, is not even in the same universe as anything else of supposed value. If my gains were a grain of sand on the seashore, knowing Christ would be the rest of the earth and every other planet in outer space combined. If my gains were a drop of water, knowing Christ would be all of the oceans, rivers, streams, and rain clouds combined. It is really immeasurable. When Paul talks of knowing Christ Jesus, it's not just about a head knowledge. This is a divine revelation of the only truth about salvation. It cuts to the heart and leads sinful men to repentance and faith. The response is to count everything else as loss to obtain it. In 1 John 5.20, John proclaims, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Paul said he suffered the loss of all things. But don't confuse that to mean that someone took his gain from him, like a thief might rob you of your car. His lost gain is not something he's looking for. He cast it aside, and his next words give a vivid picture of why. Not only has he counted his own efforts as loss, but as rubbish. Skubalon in the Greek. This is a very strong language. And it can also be translated as waste or dung or manure or, or even excrement. The point being that the self-effort of man stinks. It is only worthy of expulsion from our midst. This shows how much hatred Paul now had for his own self-effort. 
to be seen as righteous before God that he used to cling to for righteousness. He could not get more graphic with his picture of the lack of value man's deeds have when it comes to salvation. Listing our, accomplish, our accomplishments is always a practice in pleasing man. They are nothing to God. They are worse than nothing to God. God says they're like polluted garments. It is sin in, in itself to plan on telling God of our accomplishments and think we will please Him. Paul had concluded also that his and every man's efforts were actually a hindrance to truly knowing God and being seen as righteous by Him. What did he say? He counts them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He had to jettison his self-righteousness to gain Christ. Pride in our own merit is what keeps man from admitting he's a sinner and that he needs a Savior. Even if he's willing to admit he's a sinner, his pride tells him he can fix it. Pride keeps us from knowing Christ, and Paul was pleased to dump it all because God had shown him the truth. And now we come to verse 9. And the glorious, precious truth that all of Paul's words up to now have been building to. We come to the answer to the age-old question. If man is not right with God because of sin and cannot become right with God by any effort, and if God says perfect righteousness is what is needed, what can man do? Nothing. That's it. That's the point of all of Scripture and human history. Man is lost. Man is dead. Here comes Pastor Brandon's favorite part. But God. God has made the impossible possible. Not by ignoring our sin. Not by changing the rules so that sin doesn't have to be punished. Not by leaving us without hope but by providing the very righteousness that is needed. You and I need perfect righteousness. But where do we get it? It must come from somewhere else because we've seen in Scripture we cannot do it. It must come from another source. It must be given. My friends, God is the only source of perfect righteousness. And He offers it to sinful men as a gift, and He has made it available through faith in Christ. The goal is to be found in Him. After saying that He has counted everything as a loss in order that He might gain Christ, Paul continues in verse 9 saying, And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In gaining Christ, Paul says the believer gains righteousness that is not his own. Not a righteousness by law-keeping and rituals, 
but a righteousness that belongs to someone else and is given by grace through faith. Paul calls this the righteousness from God. And it is, it not only comes through faith in Christ, but it depends on faith. When I was a kid, we, probably third, fourth grade, marbles became popular. All my friends started playing marbles, so of course I had to have marbles. I had a lot of Vietnamese friends, and they, they were really good at marbles. Um, I, I wasn't even close to their skill level at marbles. Uh, but as you play and time goes on, people begin to collect more marbles. And you look at other people's marbles, and you think, they got better marbles than I have. Uh, and, and so people begin to trade their marbles. I and mean, if you're going to trade your marbles, you have to have something to offer the other person. You, you see something they have, and you want that thing. And I have to offer them something that will cause them to want to give me their valuable marbles. And that's how the deal works. You give something that's of value to get something of value from someone else, and everybody's happy. Nobody ever comes to you with their brand-new, top-of-the-line, shiny marbles and says take these let me have your gross chipped broken marbles and as we talk about this today in terms of righteousness this is what is known as the great exchange or imputed righteousness and it is at the very heart of the gospel we need Christ's righteousness Imputed, And that means that it would be credited to our account or counted towards our account. But what of our unrighteousness? Where does it go? Simply put, Christ takes on our unrighteousness and we take on His righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake He, the Father, made Him, the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. He did this by imputing our unrighteousness to Christ so that in Him we might become or have imputed to us the righteousness of God. Hence, the exchange. This is super, it's a supernatural act to be sure and how God can do this is a mystery, but this is God's love towards us, taking on the sin of men and making them righteous. This is satisfying to God and brings glory and honor to Christ. And here's how the prophet Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Bible pictures this in terms of clothing or robes or garments. You and I wear filthy, unrighteous garments of sin, and that is what we're known for and recognized by. It is what the Father sees us wearing. Isaiah 64, 6 the prophet says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, 
and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Christ, on the other hand, is known for His pure, white garments of righteousness and perfection. He is recognized as possessing these garments, and that is how the Father sees Him. His righteous garments are what we need to be clothed in. Isaiah 61.10, the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is what Paul meant when he said he would be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own. Through repentance and faith in Christ alone, the guilty sinner is seen as perfectly righteous in the garments that Jesus is known for. Jesus died on the cross wearing the dirty, filthy robes of sinners. And He was punished as if He had committed every sin belonging to you and me. Do you see the kindness of this? Do you see the surpassing worth of knowing the righteous one who gives freely to all who believe? Confidence in the flesh is always the problem of everyone trying to answer the question of how to be right before God. The world's answer is the flesh, which is to be evildoers. How can a man be in the right before God according to God? He must receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. He must repent of his sin, of trusting in himself, in his own goodness, in his own righteousness, and put his faith or trust for salvation only in the sufficient work of Christ Jesus the Lord. I said at the beginning that I wanted to come back to the subject of joy. Paul started by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This surpassing truth about where saving righteousness comes from is what he wants them to rejoice in. To follow the Judaizers is to lose the joy of salvation because that is the path of rejecting Christ and making him of no value. Galatians 2.21, Paul said, I do not nullify the grace of Christ, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We have no idea when we're going to die, but we will all die. We will then be judged by God. The question is, will you be standing there in your filthy, unrighteous robes of sin and your own worthless merit? What a fearful thought that is. What a tremendous burden to bear. Or will you stand before God clothed in the pure, white, perfectly righteous robes of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Will you be found in Him? Can you think of anything kinder and more merciful than having Christ's righteousness imputed to your account and Him taking your filthy unrighteousness and having it accounted to Him? That's the cost, and He paid it. It is unsurpassed, unspeakable joy to be found in the Savior's clothes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is so much rich, valuable truth in the Scriptures that teach us about our salvation. Lord, may we not simply understand our salvation as Christ died for my sins. God, may we understand the depths of the salvation that you have given, the cost of it. May our, the joy of our salvation be renewed afresh in the knowledge that Christ took my filthiness. He took my dirty robes. He took that, gave me His perfect robes, gave me pure righteousness. Though we may look at what you say the cost of sin is and what it takes to be made right with you, and we may look at that and say, this is impossible. It is. That's the point. Father, you, you made it possible with a gift. And Father, may we joyfully and quickly and willingly jettison every self-effort, everything we might cling to for some sort of righteousness to please you for salvation. Lord, if there's anyone listening who, who is stuck in that burden of self-righteous acts, Lord, trying to please you so that you'll save them, Lord, will you free them of that today? May they come to Christ in repentance and faith and receive the gift that is offered. Lord, thank you for this, this gift. May, may this bring praise and glory and honor to Christ. Lord, this is why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.